Hello again, Ars Technica listeners. This is the third and final installment of my three-part interview with astroarchaeology pioneer Sarah Parkak. I do hope you enjoy it. We started mid-conversation with Sarah talking about the fabulous but terrifying experience of giving a major talk on the main stage at the TED conference. So um, it is, it's a couple days into TED, right? When the, when That's the talk like is made. Tuesday. So like the next, so it's the first big day. It's the first big day. That's good. You get it out of the way a little bit early. Yes. Yeah. When, when that, the year that you and I both spoke, um, when you gave your brief talk, um, I was the second to last day. <laughs> that oh, was man. A bummer. Um, it was, I was going to be in the opening session and then something got switched and that would have been really nice because then I would have been able to chill. But okay, so second day, I, I'd imagine the first day is nothing but tension, right? Oh, I, I like, I... I, I sort of remember it and I sort of don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've been, you have been, you have been rehearsing and rehearsing. Now I'll say something. Um, I loved the way which anybody can access if they want. I love your, your wardrobe choice on the day that you gave the talk because you came out looking like a, a swashbuckling archaeologist. I mean, is that a fair assessment? Yeah. I mean, definitely a little more color, a little less stubble than, than, than Indiana Jones. Yes. But it was a very clear Indiana Jones you, you had the fedora, right? You had that cool hat, yes, right? So I, I put, yeah, I put that on on the on the stand as a display. I had my 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 cool leather archaeology boots. Yes. So yeah, a little little explorer vibe going on. So there's an explorer vibe, and and tell me, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine because you had this fascination with Egyptology and with archaeology, you must have gone through an Indiana Jones phase as a kid of thinking this is the bomb, right? I mean, phase um, is a significant understatement. Got it. Yeah, I can pretty much cite verbatim. Um, all well, the first movie and the third movie. The second one was a little bit of an. Error. We won't talk. We won't no. talk about but, the so second. Yeah, one, so yeah, so yeah, you know, mid eighties, the um, uh, the the arc movie comes out. You know, you, I, I was able to rent it. Like every Friday night, my family would do a pizza night. I think it was pretty common back then, and watch it again and again. So yeah, I, I credit that movie with being one of my inspirations for going into the field of archaeology. In fact, a lot of people in my generation ended up studying archaeology because they were inspired by Indiana Jones. That is so cool because uh, many people who get in, into astrophysics cite an interest in science fiction. So this is actually in no way surprising. Yes. And George Lucas and Steven Spielberg are obviously in both the archaeology adventure and the science fiction category. So that is that is really cool. So you, you have had this history. Now you're getting ready. It, it's it's moments before the talk. I mean, describe your mental state as as it's we're in countdown land right now. Yeah, like I'm a best case uh -huh. i i am an emotional wreck like so so to make a, a wish like this you know i felt like i was putting my professional neck on the line yes. you know i've been working for years and years at this time i had tenure um you know i kind of mid moving towards mid-career ish not super established but fairly established in my field yep. uh, but to make this wish yeah. to change the world i thought what am i doing this is insane like i'm throwing my whole career away yeah and so, yeah, so I, I went with my, my husband was with me. So um, I had to go back to my hotel room to get changed and get ready. And I'm like blubbering. I'm in tears. I'm just a mess. And my husband is being his usual wonderful self. He's trying to calm me down. Yep. Like I'm inconsolable. I pretty much think my entire life is about to come to an end. And I just kind of looked, looked off into the distance and said, universe, I need a fist bump. Like I need a sign <laughs> to show me that I am, I am not doing something that will, I will live to regret and to my dying day. 
And so we get in the elevator in this hotel. We're going to go back down to go back and I'm going to get hair and makeup done. And we get to the bottom of the elevator. And what you're about to hear is true. My husband is the witness. The door opened up and there was Harrison Ford. That is awesome. Tedster Harrison Ford. Yes. And there he was when the elevator opened after you requesting the entire universe, all of creation, fist bump, please. Yes. Universe says fist bump. Yeah. Yeah. A little more than a fist bump. And, and he smiled at me and I smiled at him and I thought, I got this. That's what gave me the confidence to go on that stage. That is fabulous. And then um, he, having played that fabulous role of Indiana Jones and seeing your Ted Wish, must have been as charmed by that as you, I would imagine. And then you ended up um, catching up later in, in the event, right? So, so I, even though I knew he was a Ted, I thought I had to earn the right to go up to him and talk to him. <laughs> so even though I saw him in the elevator, I didn't say anything. Yeah. Uh, and he, at that point, he really didn't know who I was. I hadn't given my talk. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So he uh, gave my talk. So the, the folks at Ted very kindly um, set up a lunch between myself and Harrison and a few other people oh, that is the awesome. next day. That is fabulous. So, um, so, you know, big deal. He's coming, he's coming. So he got walked in and he like, I, I, you know, he, I, people told me beforehand, you know, just be careful. Don't let your expectations, you know, get up too much. You know, he's a Hollywood actor, you know, don't, you know, he's not an academic like you basically calm down. Don't go full out nerd on him. He's not <laughs> a real archeologist. So he walks in and he, so I, I know this is going to sound a little strange and slightly Freudian, but I'm not joking. He looked, he looks a lot like my dad. Uh -huh. They have very similar manner, the, the same exact age. So he comes in, you know, he's strikingly handsome. Um, obviously he's in his seventies now, but, but still he's, he looks like he does on camera. Mm. Um, so he walks in and, and he shakes my hand and he's saying all of these lovely, lovely, you know, so touched by your talk. It was amazing. It meant so much to me. And then I, um, I got to thank him. I said, Harrison, you know, the, the main reason I was on that stage, um, was because of you, you know, I grew up watching Indiana Jones and, um, you know, thank you. Thank you for playing that character. And he looked at me and he said, you know, I'm willing to bet, you know, more lines from that movie than I do. You know, for me, it was just a part. I'm not a real archeologist. I said, you know what? I've met you now for a minute and I can see that it was your spirit that infused that character. So it was your spirit that brought him to life. And that's why I'm here. He started tearing up. There's oh. a picture that was taken at that moment. My hands over my heart. I'm gushing. It was very emotional, and he was just so kind and so gracious. Uh, and 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 I think the reason people tend to read him wrong, he's very introverted, and and he he will not say something unless he has he has a point to make. He's a very thoughtful individual. He sat across from me. He was charming, and wonderful. But there's another part to the story. So at the very end of our lunch, so my husband's there, a couple of your friends were there, his lawyer was there, um, it was, and randomly Jaden Smith was there. That's a whole other story. <laughs> so, so I thought, how shall I thank him? You know, should I shake his hand? Is that appropriate? Um, yeah, okay, I'll shake his hand. It's been very like formal and, and he's been lovely. I'll just thank him. So I go up to him at the very end, hold my hand out and say, Harrison, thank you so much for coming to this lunch. It just meant the world to me. He takes one look at my hand and I'm thinking, oh my God, I've offended him. You know, this has made him uncomfortable. He grabs me, spins me around, puts me in his arms and kisses me Oh, in front of my husband. Now mm, it was like, yeah. not a full lips, like a third, mm, like, yeah, a, yeah. like, so, so a movie kiss, a movie, movie kiss. kiss. Yeah. Yeah. But, but so I remember, um, it, there was an inside the actor studio with Karen Allen, uh, with, with all the three, with the three women that starred in the three Indiana Jones yep. movies. And he, and he kissed all of them at least once. And the inside the actor studio host 
asked all the actresses, what was it like being kissed by Harrison Ford? And at the exact same moment, all of them go, <sighs> and they all just looked off into the distance. <laughs> and I thought, entwined in his arms, like, I too, now, in the club. It was amazing. So I'm like wrapped in his arms, and he looks up at my husband, smiles, and says, I just kissed your wife. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was amazing and that was it that was my my harrison ford moment that so that's it well this this can't possibly compare but because i'm a vr geek i now need to add that after that you got to go to the temple of doom that's right that's right there was this amazing vr experience where i kind of don't remember fully my experience in the temple of doom being slightly overwhelmed by harrison ford kiss yeah i'd imagine uh, i'd imagine yeah. okay but i've got to interject because I am a VR geek, exactly what was going on. So they had this fabulous installation uh, by a company that's based in Salt Lake City called The Void, yes, which is a top-of-the-line virtual reality installation. They do all the wonderful things that great VR artists do with presumably, I don't know their budgets, but presumably hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, in budgets between the amazing hardware and then all of the artwork and software that they do. What The Void does, if anybody has an opportunity to visit one of their installations that puts it over the top, is on top of all this incredible technology and artwork and hardware and gear, they add a few hundred dollars worth of plywood. And what that means is you walk into a virtual environment. In this case, it was like a Mayan temple. Am I right? Yeah. yeah. You walk into this virtual environment. You, you're, the, the temple walls are being rendered on the video goggles that you're wearing on your head. You turn to the left. It tracks and all that other stuff. But what's amazing is you put your hand out to touch the wall and you feel something solid. And if you touch this sort of torch-like thing that they've given you and, and, and ignite a something like an Olympic torch with it, they have a heat lamp that goes off and if you are there's spider webs where the spider webs are supposed to be and all these haptic or all these tactile signals amplify what you're seeing in an incredibly powerful way anyway um enough about vr let's talk about your ted wish and where it has led you sure so my, my wish roughly paraphrased was to um, create an army a global army of citizen science to help map ancient sites and treasures around the world to protect and preserve it for future generations. So what um, my team and I built with, with a number of partners um, using the TED Prize money is a, a citizen science crowdsourcing platform called Global Explorer that allows anyone in the world from 5 to 105 to look online at satellite imagery and help find ancient sites. And we launched in Peru in late January of this year. Now, to, for those who are less familiar with the term citizen scientist, I guess that first came up with it, was it perhaps with Galaxy Zoo? Was that the first project? I think so, yes. Yeah. So, so Galaxy Zoo, and I can't remember exactly when it started, but it's a um, it started at, at Oxford University. I, I think they just had their 10th anniversary, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like so quite recently. So call it 2006, 2007-ish. Right. Yeah. So there are, I don't know, hundreds of thousands, millions of pictures taken by satellites uh, um, facing the other way, of course. Looking uh, out. Yes, yes. Of, of galaxies that come in a, a, a set range of shapes and sizes. And so what what Galaxy Zoo did is they put all this data online to, to take a little bit of training, a little bit of tutorial work, and you go onto their website and you 
you know, what do you see? Do you see blobs? Do you see circles? Do you see squares? And you kind of go through um, a, a sort of series of choices and you help them to categorize images of potential galaxies. These are, this is a spiral galaxy. This is right. an irregular galaxy. This is a globular galaxy and so forth. Because by having a, a much deeper understanding of the, the relative populations of galaxies, much could be learned about the universe. And back then, it was just lone grad students, kind of like what you were describing, the three of you looking at tens of thousands of looting pets. Back then, it was just a tiny handful of graduate students categorizing galaxy after galaxy after galaxy. And I think the guy's name is Chris Lynn. Or, or, yes. Yeah. Uh, had this idea of why don't I put piles of these images online and ask the world to help me categorize them and built a system over time where I believe Galaxy's U has had hundreds of thousands of volunteers, tens of millions of classifications over the years, far more than the entire astrophysical community could ever have done with the stuff that has to be done by people who have smart eyeballs and have been trained to identify this versus that. So, yeah. Correct. Yeah. I mean, and there's, and there's like, when this all started, there was big tension in the scientific community. Like, how could a an average person off the street, you know, do good science. But you've seen time and time again. I mean, think about who wants to be a millionaire. The crowd is wise. Yes. I can't remember the percentage when the when the crowd votes where they're right, but I think it's an overwhelming percentage of the time the crowd is right. So, yeah. and the thing is, the crowd can be right without training. Imagine training the crowd and giving them some hints and some tips. Now, it's not like they're you know they're splicing molecules and and looking at atoms. You know they're you know these are they're, it's pattern recognition, it's shape recognition. Human beings are really really good at this. Yes, and we are we are we were wired by evolution to be very good at this kind of pattern recognition. And then when you tell folks these are the specific things we're looking at, this is what a looting pit looks like. This is what a tile of earth that has no looting pit looks like. So you basically took this notion and decided to apply it to the the field that you're in because obviously you. Have have lots and lots of telescopes looking the other way, looking down at Earth. Right. So, so one of my biggest challenges, in fact, the, the challenge that anyone doing any kind of satellite or air air based remote sensing is this. You know, we talked earlier about these millions and millions of satellite images. There is no way in a thousand lifetimes that someone like me could look at all the data. And frankly, the biggest challenge is when you're looking at a computer screen for five or six hours at a time, you get eyeball fatigue, you miss things. So the idea was by building this platform and getting you know thousands and thousands of people across the globe to help look at this data, we could go much, much faster and identify things uh, at, at a far greater rate than we could, you know, normally looking at it typically with a small team. With two or three of you. So that was your, your wish, was to build a platform to bring in tens of thousands, eventually hundreds of thousands of people to gaze at images at different, not just Egypt now, you're going way beyond that, different countries, different parts of the world, not just looking for looting, but actually trying to identify sites as well, correct? Correct. So so we launched in Peru. Yep. Um, and for a lot of different reasons. So first of all, it has an extraordinary archaeology. It's got a diversity of cultures. You've got the Inca, you've got the Moche, you've got the Chimu, you've got so many other um, extraordinary cultures. And the other thing too is uh, with the data that I use, you can't see through trees, but you can identify very clearly any structures that are in desert. So in Peru, um, it's mostly semi-arid, um, or at least most of the country is. Obviously, a lot is covered with rainforest as well. So it just it was an ideal place to start. The other reason, we make sure to partner very closely with governments um, as part of our platform work. So the Ministry of Culture in Peru already had a very strong history of using drones to map ancient sites. So we knew they would be very open to the possibility of using technology. Oh, really? They're using drones already? Yes, that, 
there. Point. Fantastic. So let's talk about Peru now. You've had in the work that you've done. Is it over sixty thousand people who have, have have helped with this with the project now? Nearly sixty thousand. Nearly yes. sixty thousand people have gotten on the site. Uh, I have gotten on the site, and I've, I'll just describe it briefly from a user perspective. So I find it very peaceful. Um, you are presented with a series of you call them tiles. Tiles. Yes. Yeah. So tiles. And what is what is the sort of the the geographic sweep of a tile? How many square meters is that ballpark? So each tile tends to be about 300 meters by 300 meters in size in that we've you know now looked at millions of square kilometers of satellite imagery and in zooming in that tent like when you go on global explorer what you're seeing is the typical amount of zoomed inedness i think i may have just invented that's that word that's a great word i love um, it yes uh, uh, that that we would use typically when processing satellite imagery it, it it's a very soothing process and actually was a galaxy zoo user you know, probably almost 10 years ago, and it's been a long time since I've done any citizen science, but it immediately came back to me. It's a great thing to do late at night when you're unwinding, you know, put on some soft music, dim the lights a little bit, and you're looking at this procession of images with a notion that if you spot something of consequence, um, that is of consequence. And other people also look at each image. And so you have like a crowd wisdom. If, if I think I see a looting pit, sort of takes the pressure off. Like, I think that might be a looting pit. I'm going to flag that as a plausible looting pit. But many other people are also going to see it and a consensus will emerge. And that consensus is incredible accuracy, right? That's right. So so typically, I think we are, our consensus score right now is 90%. So if there are 10 users that look at an image, you know, nine of them have to agree that it's it's a feature or a site. It then get, gets kicked to us, so we get data dumps every week mm. um, from our partners, and we then look at the imagery really, really carefully. So it's been interesting. Um, you know, now the the crowd has looked at almost 13 million tiles. Wow. I should note there's no GPS information. So all you know is that you're somewhere in Peru. The only people that know the coordinates are my team, um, obviously to protect the sites. Right. It would be terrible if a if a if a intended looter is looking at these yeah, images yeah. like, like Whoa, a gift. <laughs> look at that. What's the GPS on that? All they know is it's in Peru someplace. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Good luck so, finding that. Yeah. So um out of the thirty thousand or so, and we're calling them anthropogenic features. So features that potentially could be something other than a modern feature. Um, you know, there's about an eighty-five to ninety percent correspondence with between what the users say is a site and what turns out to be a site. That's really high accuracy. That's really high. And so that has leveraged you guys beyond belief. So you've got these 60,000 registered users. They have looked at these 12 million images. They have flagged 30,000 things, which is not an overwhelming number for you professionals to look at. And then you're now actually specialists in the field are now going out and exploring these things, right? So when we got the data, I mean, clearly 30,000 is, is massive. So my team and I started categorizing them. You know, we're, By the way, we're working very closely with Peruvian specialists, archaeologists just getting their feedback, getting their, um, you know, their, their expert opinion. So many hundreds of these features appear to be what we're calling large, large potential sites. So hilltop fortresses, major settlements. And what we're doing now is we're parceling that data out to Peruvian archaeology specialists, both in the field and in the U.S. And we're having them go through it because what we don't know, you know, we can only go off the um, Peruvian government's database and peer-reviewed publications. But if something, say, were found in 1957 and was announced in an obscure journal in Spanish, like mm. we are not going to know that that's a site. You won't be privy right. to that. But, yeah. but these archaeologists are going to know. And what's really interesting is that um, a lot of the archaeologists who are beginning to look at the data kind of turning around and going, wow, like I've worked in this valley for 25 or 30 years. I had no idea those sites were on top of those hills. Wow. It works. 
Wow. So you you were in a sense helping the Peruvian um, archaeological community set its own agenda. I mean, you're not setting it for them. You're giving them the data, amazing data, that will enable them to really coherently set an agenda that that may drive the field for decades to come. Yeah, I mean, it's going to take a very long time for a lot of these sites to be surveyed on the ground. So we're working with a, a gentleman named Professor Luis Jaime Castillos. Um, he's an eminent Peruvian archaeologist. He does a lot of amazing work with drones. And so he's actually gone out and done some early drone mapping of some of these sites. The footage is amazing. I can't mm. wait for the world to see it. Uh, and so, yeah, it's this idea, like, you can clearly see a lot from space, but with a drone, you can see individual stones smaller than the size of a baseball. Wow. Um, so, yeah, so, but there's this whole, like, connecting data from space to on the ground. And what phase one of the platform taught me and my team, you know, number one, we have to make a lot of changes to the platform. We've gotten a lot of feedback from the crowd. You know, for example, in, in future, we'll have a sandbox type thing where people could go on. They're, they're getting immediate feedback on what's a site and what's not a site and what's yeah. a discovery. Also, uh, what we've done, because we just didn't want people to go on the site and look for features and that's it, it's a game. The whole mm -hmm. thing's been gamified. Mm -hmm. So there's 10 levels. As you go through the different levels, you unlock rewards, you unlock uh, content, um, you get badges as you go up. So we're going to be gamifying it even more uh, yep. for, for the next iteration. So let's talk about the next iteration. I know that there are some things that you can't quite announce yet, but it is, tell me if it is fair to say that this amazing thing that came out of this Ted Wish that created this, you know, these 12 million images and all this wonderful work in Peru is going to be going forward into other places, correct? Yeah. So I can't announce where we're going next, but I, I can assure you it is a very, very exciting place. We're going to be partnering closely with the government of that country, as well as some extraordinary groups on the ground. Uh, and so, you know, it's evolved, right? We've a lot of lessons learned. So we had 60,000 users from over 200 countries. We're going to be working on building our community. Our dream is to get our users up to you know, 250,000, half a million. You know, can we get a million people using the next version of the platform? The other thing we're going to be doing is, um, even though the first version of the platform was mobile capable, yeah. we're going to be developing an app. That will be, you know, can anyone in the world. So you're standing in a checkout line, and you can uh, you can look for sites, which is profoundly important because such a high number of people, particularly the next billion people who get online, are going to be already a very large number of people are only on phones. That's right. Those smartphones are are getting better and better and cheaper and cheaper, and they're getting to the point where they will be in substantially all hands in a decade or so. And so that that opens up the aperture vastly to the number of people who can actually participate in this project. Right. So, you know, started in Peru, expanding next year, you know, year after, somewhere else, a couple more places. Will it be possible within 10 years for us to have mapped the entire world? I know that sounds completely insane, but with things like AI, machine learning, uh, with the additional availability of satellite imagery, I think it will be possible. So that is your your big term 10-year decadal goal is to to map from an archaeological standpoint the entire planet, all Correct. of the countries, all of the sites. Yes. And you'll be going at it at least for now, country by country, right. for starters. And it is fascinating you mentioned the drones. Um, there is no reason why your citizen scientists can't get in on the drone data as well because drones are going to generate massive video feeds. There's going to be plenty of stuff for your you know, 60,000, then hopefully a quarter million, then perhaps even a million people to gaze at and find things. That's right. So, so the question is, you know, what, what additional content or opportunities can we provide our users? Because 
we have some amazing, amazing stories from people we call our super users. So our top level is space, space archaeologists. I mean, of course it is. Of and, course it is. Yes. yes. And, and, but there are, there are a couple dozen of these space archaeologists from around the world. People who have looked at the highest number the of images. 50,000 or more images. And how many of them are there? I think there are a couple dozen. Wow. So these are very committed people. They have spent many, many hundreds of hours on the platform. And we've gotten to meet with some of them. We interact with them. And you know, every single one of them has an extraordinary story to share. One of my favorite stories, um, I got to share it, Ted, this year. So there's a woman named Doris who's from America's Heartland. She's 92 years old. Wow. She's disabled. So she can't leave her home. She's in her, in her wheelchair, but she's just the spark of amazingness. And she's a total science addict. So she just looks through Global Explorer. She loves it. Um, she always wanted to be an archaeologist. This way she can really contribute. And she's amazing. Um, and it's funny. So when we designed the platform, you know, we had our user archetypes. So we had the, you know, the nerdy archaeology student, the, um, you know, your, your late 20s, mid-career, early 30s professional who knew what TED Talks were, you know, your, your well-off retiree who traveled the world. And, uh, and I'm not making this up. One of our user archetypes was a disabled stay-at-home grandmother from Albuquerque, who was a little nervous about technology, but who really wanted to make a difference. Like, and lo and behold, you yeah, have her. We have Doris. You have Doris. So we got it. But this, yeah. to me, like making exploration accessible to everyone, regardless of uh, uh, disability, age, gender, what your background is. You know, this. So, you know, being a woman, kind of coming up through the scientific ranks. For the most part, um, the people who lead digs are white and male and of a certain age. Um, archaeology needs to change. We need to make exploration accessible to more and more people. We need these eyeballs. You know, I can't tell you how many years it would have taken my team and I to look through the same area, but many years. Yeah. So can you imagine if we get millions of people around the world, from kids to retirees, um, all looking at satellite imagery and you create this community that's connected through this passion of, of protecting the past. And that's ultimately what the wish was about. Um, you know, you don't just have looting in, in Syria and Iraq and Egypt, you have looting all over the world. And I think the only way to stop it is to make people feel like they're, um, they're contributing. They've got skin in the game. You know, I made that wish not to make a change today, but to think about how things could be changed in 20 years. And the other thing that's also intriguing and very important about this is think of all the people who, who, whose tooth fairies lack the sophistication of yours, right? Um, I mean, you got an amazing book at exactly the right time. There are surely already lots of people with single-digit ages who have been on your platform. Yeah. And have started this discovery process, right? Yeah, I mean, my you know my friends have their kids on, and they'll send me pictures, which is wonderful. Um, but you know, think of all the kids all over the world that don't have access um, to museums, uh, or or you know the ability to visit sites. And this is a way for them to get to be able to participate, to get a lot of great information and rich content. You know, even though my my son uh, is you just turned five, so he was four over the summer. You know, I would sit down with him, and we'd use the platform together, yeah. and I'd get him to hit yes or no. It was so much fun seeing him get excited about looking and trying to find things. You know, it's for everybody. Well, it's um, having seen and used the 1.0 platform. And I know a thing or two about building websites and about UI UX issues and, and all that goes into creating a, you know, a, a significantly scaled and scalable platform that can support tens of thousands of users. It's amazing what you guys have accomplished 
um, on that initial million dollars. It sounds like you are you are expanding, presumably finding other sources of funding, and it's really exciting to think of where you're going to go. Um, could you tell folks where to find the find things online if they want to become an explorer? And do you? This obviously is not a fundraising pitch or a fundraising show, but if people want to support the organization, is there a mechanism for doing that on the site? Sure. So if everyone goes to globalexplorer.org, and so instead of global and the word explorer, instead of explorer, instead of ex, it's just x for x marks the spot. So if you go to globalexplorer.org, you can sign up. Um, you know, there are opportunities to to donate, but kind of, you know, go. And even though technically the Peru campaign has ended, you can still participate. You can still look at tiles. You can still join our community. Um, like I said, we'll be hiring a community manager, manager soon. So, you know, you'll be, get, you'll be part of this amazing community of people from around the world. Yeah, we have a lot of really, really exciting things planned. You know, tons of lessons learned for me. Um, I should say we had an extraordinary team. You know, we partnered with National Geographic, with Digital Globe, with TED, um, the, a company called Mondo Robot helped us to build the platform. I did not do this by myself. There, there was a, a team of many, many dozens of people. You know, we got, um, you know, amazing information from game experts. You know, people like Amy Robinson of iWire uh, really helped us to think through the strategy and helping us to build community. So, yeah, I, I was telling you earlier, Rob. You know, if you'd said to me, you know, two years ago, um, you know, oh, you know, can you help me with my UX and UI? I would have been like, eh, you might want to go to the doctor and get that checked out and don't touch me. And to give, actually to give iWire uh, a shout out, that is another citizen science project. Yes. Um, that, and Amy is a Tedster, Amy Sterling now, right? Yes. Yeah. Amy Robinson Sterling um, recently acquired uh, a new last name. And so she has been working, this is a neuroscience project. And the, uh, the, the objective was to basically, or is, to map all of the neurons in the eye of a mouse. Is that right? I think so, yes. Yeah, yeah. And it is a similar thing where one can gaze at lots of tiles. And in this case, they're, they're trying to get a map of the synapses and the neural, basically the neural landscape of the eye of a mouse, which is apparently almost as complex as the entire Indus River Valley. It's just the amount of neurons that are in this one little eye. So that's another citizen science project that's out there. And I know that she was very helpful to you because she'd been doing this and was a Tedster and, and you know, obviously was very aware of your wish. Well, thank you very kindly for being so generous with your time here. This has been awesome. Thank you for, uh, for interviewing me. Absolutely. And uh, best of luck with the near future of Global Explorer. Um, when you announce what's next, I think it's going to be really, really exciting. Thank you. In talking to Sarah, I was reminded of a concept Tim O'Reilly and I discussed last week, that of combinatorial innovation. This is what happens when unrelated advances in disparate fields come together and enable something huge and entirely unforeseen. An example Tim and I discussed was ride-sharing, an inconceivable notion until large swaths of humanity started walking around with two-way GPS devices, just as mobile payment systems like those pioneered by Braintree, Stripe, and others happened to pop up. When powerful new core technologies are suddenly sort of lying around, magic almost spontaneously emerges from the least expected quarters. In Sarah's case, the same ubiquitous GPS, plus digital imaging advances that leapt from Earth-based cameras to outer space, and the internet phenomenon of citizen science, combined to revolutionize the ancient art of archaeology in ways that no one could have possibly imagined. While the archaeology market is somewhat smaller than ride-sharing, the changes are no less sweeping. I mean, how many full-time archaeologists would it take to detect tens of thousands of new ancient sites in scarcely more than a year, as recently as the 90s? 
I'm going to guess probably all of them. This is one of countless proofs that the creation of foundational multi-purpose technologies can bring unimaginable benefits as they spread. And the things we do as a society to abet the development of those technologies have a boundless return on investment. And our technical listeners, this is of course the final installment of my three-part interview with Sarah Parkak. In case you're interested, the current episode of my podcast is a conversation with Yale University primatologist and psychology professor, Laurie Santos. Laurie has done amazing research on cognition in animals, including monkeys and dogs, and we talk about all of that. We then discuss the craziest thing which happened earlier this year. Laurie had noticed that there was something of a misery epidemic underway at Yale. This is something which is also quite well documented on campuses throughout the U.S. and beyond campuses in the U.S., So as kind of an experiment, she decided to launch a course on the science and practice of happiness. To her astonishment, it quickly became the most popular class in Yale's 317-year history. A quarter of the university took the 1.0 version of her class this spring. Lori discusses all this, as well as the neuroscientifically proven ways that you yourself could become a happier person. All of this is in the current episode of the After On podcast. You can find it by visiting my site at after-on.com or just type the words After On into your favorite podcast app and scroll through the episodes. There you'll find lots of stuff about life sciences, above all genomics and synthetic biology, conversations about robotics, privacy and government hacking, cryptocurrency, astrophysics, drones, and a whole lot more. Or you could just join me next week right here on ours. <laughs>